Well, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 3. It is our third week in this book of Jonah, and we have been seeing the last two weeks how Jonah is just this important book for us to study because Jonah's life really does intersect with ours. Uh, Jonah was a man who ran from God, and all of us have run from God. All of us have resisted God. We do it in a lot of ways. You may do it in an overt way sometimes. Maybe some of you experienced this. You grew up in church, and you knew the doctrines, and you believed all the right things, but you just came to this point in your life where you decided, no, I'm not going to live that way anymore, and you ran. You ran away from your faith. Sometimes it's more covert. Your running may involve like your conscience, and you know right from wrong, but you're basically, you're basically saying no to your conscience. There's been this conflict within you, and biblically, we would say that's running from God because it is God who puts that sense of right and wrong into every one of our hearts. See, the truth is all of us know at some level what it means to run from God, what it means to resist God. Now, we've been tracking along Jonah's story here. God had told him, if you'll remember in Jonah 1, that he was to go to Nineveh. I told you that this is the ancient city that's located where Mosul, Iraq, is located today. And God said, Jonah, I want you to tell these people to repent of their sin. And Jonah said, God, you know, I believe in you, but no, I'm not going to do it. And that's Jonah 1. And we learned a really important lesson here. That lesson is you can run from God, but you cannot hide. How many of you have discovered that in your life? See, God is sovereign. God has all power. God knows everything. God's everywhere. And when we run, sooner or later, God's going to expose us. We see that in Jonah 2. I told you last week that Jonah 2 is kind of like Jonah's journal from inside the fish. And we saw last week that, that God will let us hit bottom when we run. God will do whatever it takes to bring us back to him. He will use circumstances sometimes. Sometimes he brings consequences to bear on our lives to discipline his children. And as he is pursuing us, as he's doing these things to us, we need to remember always that these things he does are signs of his love for us. God will not just let us go. God will keep pursuing us. He'll keep coming after us until we repent. So we need to be reminded that God's relentless pursuit of us is a sign of his care for us, his mercy for us. I I said last week that God doesn't discipline us to pay us back. He disciplines us to bring us back. And there are some of you already, you've responded to God's word. You've said in your life, I'm coming back and I'm looking at my life, the, the chaos that I have been creating by my running, it's enough. I'm surrendering. I'm stopping. I'm gonna come back. The interesting thing is, so far, really, we've only seen half the story. There's a lot still to come. And I want to point out to you that the most famous part of the story we've already looked at, which is Jonah and the fish, that's not even the point of the story. Do you understand that? We haven't even gotten to the real point of Jonah's story yet. We're going to see that starting today and then drawing it together next week, the ultimate point of this book, what it really is all about. Now, to get into that, what I want you to see this morning in Jonah 3 is that God is the God of the second chance. When we run, when we hit bottom, God is so full of grace and mercy that he gives us second chances. I want you to follow along with me as I read Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll we'll talk about it. Here's the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So what does Jonah 3 show us about the God of the second chance? Here's the first thing. Go ahead and write this down in your message notes. God loves to give his children a second chance. This is what verses 1 through 4 remind us. God had called Jonah to obey him and carry out his mission already. Uh, He called him to go to Nineveh once before, and he was supposed to preach against it, this message of repentance, but Jonah didn't do that. Jonah ran. And we've talked a little bit about why that may have been. Maybe, Maybe fear was involved. Nineveh would have been an intimidating place to go to. It would have been a frightening place to try to preach judgment to. It was a violent city. Maybe Jonah was afraid for his life, but we're going to see very clearly next week, whether he was afraid or not, that his real reason for running was this. Jonah didn't want God's grace and God's mercy to break out on the people of Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet of God with a callous heart. Jonah was indifferent to people far from God. Jonah didn't want to do what it would take to reach them. And so God sent a great storm on Jonah, this running prophet. God placed him into the fish's belly and showed Jonah severe mercy. And in that fish, Jonah changed at least somewhat. In that fish, Jonah became open at least somewhat to God's plan. And now in Jonah 3, the call of God comes again. I want you to see three uh, really enormous insights into God in these first few verses. Here's the first one. God displays his mercy through second chances. This is part of what we see going on here. I just want to ask you, is there anybody here who has ever screwed up so royally that you find yourself thinking, I'll never be able to be right with God again? You did something in your past, maybe. You made a choice. You, you, you had a big mistake. You made a decision, and you think it's over. You would do anything for a do-over. Jonah's story, one of the things it's doing is just reminding you, you are in good company. Every one of us, we all need God's mercy. It is good news that God is a God of second chances, and God is a God of third chances, and fourth chances, and like 14th chances. You know, these second chances, they're God's specialty. It's part of his mercy, but 
but it is always God's mercy. It's always God's mercy. Alongside of saying this, I want to emphasize God does not owe you a second chance. You must never run from God presuming that you can just turn around anytime you want. God is not obligated to give anyone a second chance. And here's the truth biblically. We need to present the whole picture. God doesn't always give second chances. Anybody remember Lot's wife? She turned around and disobeyed one time, and that was it. Anybody remember the story where King David was having the Ark of the Covenant brought back, and a guy named Uzzah reached out when the oxen stumbled, and the Ark looked like it was going to topple over, and he touched the Ark, and he died. Anybody remember the story in the early church in the book of Acts chapter 5 where a couple named Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they were giving to the Lord and they died? You don't always get a second chance. Second chances are always signs of God's mercy to us and he doesn't owe us mercy, so we must not presume. Second, when God gives you a second chance, God has given you another chance to obey. Obedience is the point of a second chance. And one of the things that's interesting that God so often does is what he does right here with Jonah. When when he gives you a second chance, he takes you right back to that place where you ran, right back to that place where you disobeyed. He's going to give you another chance to obey him. And a lot of times, God tells us to do something. We run from God, and then we decide we're going to get right with him. And we want to start right here where we are right now. We want to say, oh, God, you can just kind of let that thing go. God seldom does that. God takes us back usually to that point where we disobeyed and says, I'm going to give you a chance to obey me again. I'm going to give you a chance to say yes where you said no. See, God's calls on our life, they just do not go away. They are always there waiting to be fulfilled. And maybe you've run away from something God has called you to do. Don't ever think that that you can move on, that you can substitute something else, and that's going to be God's plan A for you. You can't do it. When you run, God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't leave us. He doesn't consign us to second-class status for the rest of our lives. It doesn't mean we're never going to know his blessing again, but God wants us to obey. So second chances are always about obedience. And then third, this is kind of easy to overlook, but it may be the most important thing to think about. It's only pride that keeps us from experiencing God's second chances. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but Jonah could have said no a second time. And there are many people who do say no to God's second and third and fourth chances. Now, why is it important to think about this? Well, let me just put it this way. To say yes to a second chance always involves a willingness to forsake my pride. We don't know exactly how Jonah had to do it, but he had to forsake his pride. And pride will, take, will stand in the way of you taking God's second chances more than anything else. Maybe Jonah had to go back to friends and family and say to them, I was wrong. Maybe Jonah had to explain to anyone who knew what he had done, I was wrong. He had to talk about to them and admit that his heart wasn't right, that there was junk in his life. You see, to return to God's plan once we've left will always demand humility, will always demand that we admit that we were wrong. And there are some people 
We never get past this. I mean, how many of us, we, we just cannot own our weaknesses. We just cannot admit openly and honestly to someone that we have screwed up. You know, how many of us will not confess who we are? See, this is pride, and it's actually the worst kind of pride. It's spiritual pride. You say, what is spiritual pride? Well, let me talk about that for a few moments. The essence of spiritual pride is when you think you're doing well spiritually. At least you're doing better than the people you know. It's when you you see yourself as someone who helps other people spiritually because you're so mature and you're going to do almost anything you can to keep that image going. Spiritual pride is an evil that can act like a cancer on your soul. It's when you always feel more mature and more biblical and more prayerful than another person. You're more in tune with God and with his will. Spiritual pride shows up when you're unwilling to go to another person with a spiritual problem because you just cannot admit spiritual weakness. You want everyone to tell you your struggles. You like that, but you don't want to tell them yours. Or maybe what's sickest of all, you've learned that you can reveal a safe weakness and that will make you seem more mature, more spiritual. Spiritual pride happens when we want recognition for our gifts and for our efforts. It's when we make a mistake or we're caught in an error, we've committed a sin and what we find ourselves doing instead of just honestly confessing is we justify ourselves or or we apologize in such a way that we kind of make ourselves you know, seem innocent or maybe sickest of all. We, we, we try to act like because we've done this and we're saying something about it, we're more spiritual because we've collapsed. Spiritual pride is when you find yourself continually focusing on the sins of other people, when you enjoy finding fault and criticizing other people, when you look for weaknesses in other people and you find that you're eager to expose their weaknesses. You really just enjoy that. It's when you don't know someone, but you see them and you assume that you know them and you assume you know their motives. Or when you see their shortcomings, you decide it's your duty to bring it to their attention. Spiritual pride is when you resent others getting admiration or recognition. You get negative to them because you really want the attention yourself. You see, spiritual pride is really when you think you're healthy and other people need some of your health. As G.K. Chesterton wrote, the one great spiritual disease is thinking that you are quite well. Are you ready for the biggest test of pride of all? Spiritual pride is, in all of this discussion that you've been listening to, what you've been doing is thinking of somebody else and hoping, really hoping that they will hear this. The existentialist Albert Camus, not a believer, once quipped that too many people climb onto the cross of Christ merely to be seen from a greater distance, even if it means trampling on the one who has been hanging there for so long. You see, in more ways than any of us can imagine, pride is the root of all kinds of evil. Nothing, nothing can stand in the way of you and God's call in your life and your obedience to that call more than the pride in your heart. See, for Jonah to respond to God's call, 
to take God up on his offer of a second chance required humility. So I want to just ask you now, this is like gut check time. Is there anything that you have run away from, anything that you have left behind, anything that you have abandoned and you shouldn't have? Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a vocational call. Maybe it was a call to ministry. I don't know. You can fill in the blank. You know what it is for you. This is a hard question. It's an uncomfortable question, but it could determine whether or not you live the life God has called you to live. So you can go back. You can return to what God wants you to do. You can experience his forgiveness. And you can know that if you go back humbly, you're not going to receive judgment. You're going to receive mercy. But you have to turn your back on pride. You have to care more about being right in God's eyes than being honored in people's eyes. That's what Jonah did. I think it's really a good thing. It saved his life. I want you to see what happened next. We're in second part of verse 3, and then into verse 4. It says, Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now let me just stop here for a moment, because this reveals something of what God asked Jonah to do, how God was feeling. First, we read that Nineveh was a very important city, and it was. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was one of the largest cities in the world. We've already talked about how politically important, culturally important, militarily important that it was as a city. But if you think that's why this city was important to God, then you're missing the heart of this book. Nineveh was a great city because it was filled with people who matter to God. I heard someone say a long time ago that you have never locked eyes with anyone who didn't matter to God. This is true. That's the way we need to view the world. And that's how God viewed Nineveh. The NIV translates this text, a very important city, but a more literal reading of the Hebrew is that it was a city important. And then wedged in there is this little prepositional phrase in the Hebrew text, to God. It was important to God. That's what made it very important. It was important to God. This just reminds us of something we need to to recall often. People outside the church, friends, people outside the faith, they are not our enemies. It's never good guys versus bad guys. People who don't know God They are people just like us, and God loves them as much as us. They matter to him. Nineveh mattered. And then there was this mission itself, the mission that God gave Jonah. It wasn't an easy one. Going to a large city, an important city, an intimidating city, just getting there was so difficult. You know, I've heard a number of people talk about Jonah getting spit up on the shore, and then he turns around, and there's the people of Nineveh looking at him. That's not how it was. The shore of the Mediterranean was like 550 miles over land to get to Nineveh. Jonah had to walk that. It took at least a month, maybe five or six weeks. And this kind of raises to the surface another key lesson. This won't be on the screen, but maybe you should write this down because some of you need to think about it. God's call on your life may be difficult. It may call you to confront your fears and endure some suffering. It may call you to experience hardship in your life. And the reason I'm 
bringing this up is that some of us have a tendency to think that if problems or trials show up, if, if we are put into uncomfortable situations, if we have to go through unhappy periods in our lives, we tend to think that that must mean it's time for me to move on, that, that I can abandon a post, I can run away from a task or a commitment that I have made. Some of us think if I don't enjoy this, it must be a sign from God that I'm not supposed to do this. And so often, I would suggest more often than not, that is a grave mistake. More often than not, the difficulty is actually at the heart of the task that God gives to us. Now, did you notice what God wanted Jonah to say? I mean, it was a hard message itself. It's all hard. Uh, Jonah's message is eight words in English. It's only five words in Hebrew. I would kind of translate it this way. Jonah said, 40 days and you're going to be blown up. And he probably said, just thought I'd let you know, kind of passing through, just thought I'd tell you. See, going to people with truth is almost always hard. Have you noticed how awkward and difficult conversations about spiritual things tend to be? I heard someone give this definition of of witnessing. They said, witnessing is two very nervous people talking to one another. Anybody ever experienced that reality? You know, the, the hardest kinds of conversations that, that we could have, but what conversations could matter more? And this was God's point. We need to let God's word challenge us on this. Let me put it this way, because a lot of what Jonah is about is what we today would call evangelism. Let me put it this way. Who is your Nineveh? Where is your Nineveh? Who, what person do you need to have your heart break for that if you're honest, your heart has not been moving toward breaking for them, your heart is getting harder and harder toward them? What would it take for you to reach out to that person, even if it required sacrifice? I mean, what, what, what part of the evangelistic flame in your life have you let die down. Are you here today and you don't even think it's your responsibility? You don't even consider that something you have to do, telling others about Jesus? Maybe you need to pray today and ask God to open your eyes enough that you begin to care, to open your eyes enough that you actually begin to see those opportunities the Holy Spirit's opens up, open doors that you can walk through so you can talk about spiritual things. Maybe even something as simple and basic as extending an invitation to a friend or neighbor to come and experience what worship is around here. See, God has called us all to this task. The God who gives you a second chance when you run is calling you to show his grace and his mercy to other people. That leads us right into the second thing that God did through Jonah when he said yes. This God of the second chance, you can write this down, he loves to give people who don't know him a second chance. Not just those of us inside his family, but those of us outside the family. God doesn't just offer second chances to his children, something the Bible makes clear many, many places God loves to give second chances to people who don't know him, to people who are far from him, even to people who are his enemies. I, I have told you earlier about how violent, how evil the Ninevites were, how they killed and 
tortured the people that they conquered. They did this in unspeakable ways. And let me remind you that the reason we know what they did is they wrote it down. In other words, they were boasting about their evil. They bragged about their violence. But in spite of this, in spite of all their evil, this this book tells us that God loved them enough to give them a second chance, that he wanted them to know his love and his grace and his mercy. It's the reason that he sent Jonah. It's the reason Jonah went on this difficult task. Again, you know, just try to put yourself in Jonah's sandals. He comes from a small village. He's going to one of the largest cities in the world. He's walking the streets of this metropolis, calling out God's message. And when he did, Look again at what happened. Verses 5 through 9 say, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. They repented. Nineveh repented, and it happened immediately. So Jonah's answering of his call, Jonah's humility and obedience to go at great hardship, his willingness to say what God wanted said, it resulted in widespread impact. They repented, and man, did they repent. I want you to notice the five components that we see of their repentance. Number one, it says they believed God. In other words, they They took Jonah's message to heart enough to see that they needed to turn back to God. Second, it says they fasted. They went without food. Now, this isn't the primary use of fasting in the Bible. Primarily in the Bible, fasting is a spiritual discipline. You go without food or water for a period of time in order to to turn away from the preoccupations of the flesh, in order to heighten your spiritual sensibilities. But here, the Ninevites, they fast as a way of repenting. They're turning to God and being serious about it, hoping that God will turn to them. The third thing we see is they put on sackcloth and ashes. You've probably heard that phrase before. Maybe you don't know what it was about. Sackcloth was this coarse, uh, thick cloth, very uncomfortable, usually made of goat skin. You would wear it instead of normal clothes and You would throw some ashes on your face. It would symbolize your grief over something. In other words, you were turning from earthly comforts and earthly pleasures to focus on God. And then there's this other detail. Anybody notice this, that they they made the animals fast, that they put sackcloth on the animals? Anybody else go, what's that about? Well, um, I kind of think it's this. And most of us aren't really like country people, so we may not really understand. Some of you probably do. But when you don't feed livestock, what do they do? Does anybody know? The answer is they start mooing. They start making noises, right? When they're hungry and when they're thirsty, they start calling out. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. A city full of animals 
and they're all mooing all across the city. It was just something that was going to add to the atmosphere of, of humiliation that these people were entering into, bowing down, subjugating themselves, you know, making themselves uncomfortable, showing their desire to truly turn away from God, this great cacophony of animals making noise along with all that they were doing. And in the midst of this, the fourth thing is they prayed. And we're told they called urgently on God. And then fifth, it says they turned from their evil ways. You see, this is a, a deep repentance. And one of the things that I think that this example of the Ninevites' repentance should do is it should encourage us. It should just give us a fresh dose of, of optimism about our friends and people in our family who we have found ourselves getting really discouraged and pessimistic about. You have anybody in your life and you've tried to tell them about Jesus and they have turned away and they have rejected you and they're not listening to you and you found yourself thinking they're never going to turn. They're never going to listen. It's easy to get in that place, isn't it? Well, be reminded here, even people like these Ninevites can turn to God. There was no one less likely to turn to God than them, but they did, and they, they did it instantaneously. Maybe you're wondering, you've been thinking, well, how did this happen? I mean, this is, it's, it's a miracle, and this really, it, it really is, but there's a couple things that we can see that are involved here that I think would encourage you. Go ahead and write these down, two things. You can know that they, they responded in part because everyone is searching for God. Everyone is searching ultimately for, for spiritual reality. God has put the search in them, and you will never meet someone who isn't a spiritual seeker, who isn't able to be touched by God, because God's created us that way. We are incurably spiritual creatures. It's like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O oh God. This is who God made us to be. But when you look at this situation, there was something else going on. Another reason they turned so quickly, and you need to know, it didn't depend on Jonah. I would put it this way. Number two, God was working in their hearts. In other words, it wasn't the strength and the power of Jonah and his message that did the convincing. The power of his words that he spoke, that was not the issue. It was God's power that made the difference. That's ultimately why this happened. Now, God displays his power in a number of ways, and people who've studied this period of time have identified some different things that were going on that could be evidences of how God was working that, that opened the Ninevites up, that caused them to be searching. We, we don't know exactly when Jonah preached in Nineveh. It was sometime between the year 800 and 750 BC. But during that time, we do know that some historical developments were preparing the Ninevites. This was a, a period of time where the Assyrian Empire was on the decline. They were in a time of political and military weakness. They were facing threats from kingdoms outside of them. There was a particular mountain kingdom, very fierce kingdom, the Urartu people that was encroaching from the north and at this time was getting close to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh were afraid. Also during this time, we know of several very unusual natural disasters that had hit. There were severe plagues, historians have discovered, that hit Nineveh in 765 and 759 B.C. There was a total eclipse of the sun 
in 763. These superstitious Ninevites, they thought their world was falling apart. So you could maybe put all these things together. And then I just wonder the fact that on top of all that, the fact that Jonah just looked like a freak. I mean, imagine he's been inside a fish three days. A lot of people think his skin would have been bleached white by the digestive juices. Maybe his hair was white. You know, here's this really strange guy. Looks like he's come back from the dead and he's walking around the streets of your city saying, repent. Would you repent? You might. You might. And I'm also wondering if on top of all that, he was fearless. Again, after you've been inside a fish three days and you survived, what are you afraid of? I mean, it could be part of what caused the Ninevites to take his message seriously. But whatever it was, here's the most important thing we need to know. It was God who was working. Some of you need to write this next thing down. Just just write it down so you can think about it. It, it, It'll encourage you in the long run. Here's what it is. You will never convert anyone. You will never convert anyone. It's God's deal. It's God's work. We are just vessels. We are just conduits. We are just the tools that God uses. In fact, just to drive this home right now, I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say to them, you're just a tool. Go ahead. Some of you are a little bit too enthusiastic about that, but that's another issue. You know, um, every Sunday before I preach, before I talk to you, I, I pray and ask God to use the gifts that he's given me. I ask God to work by his Holy Spirit and fill me with this Holy Spirit. I ask God to open up hearts and open up minds of the people who listen, that God would take what I say, even if I don't say it the right way, even if it's not expressed in the most clear way, that God would take it and he would penetrate hearts and he would penetrate minds with truth. Because I know in the end, the power of what we do here is not in my eloquent words, whether they're eloquent or not. It's not in my gifts or my abilities. The power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what is also true. Same thing's true for you. Same thing is true for you. It's not about how much of the Bible you know. It's not about how clever and intelligent you are. It's not about how well you know how to answer questions or debate with someone. See, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So our job is not so much about how clever and how clear we are in presenting the gospel, although we should do our best. Our job fundamentally is just to present the gospel because the gospel itself is power for salvation. And God works. He works. And it's his job. We can trust him to do that. We don't have to worry, do I have enough to help someone turn around? Do I have enough to explain to them how to be saved? It's not my job. It's God's job. My job is to be the messenger. My job is simply to speak truth in love and leave results to him. Because God is the God of a second chance. And God not only loves to give his children second chances, God loves to give people who don't know him people who are far from him, second chances. Let me bring it home very personally. The third thing I want you to write down is God offers you a second chance. Let's just make it personal. 
What was God's response? Well, it's exactly what we would expect from the God of the second chance. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. I love that verse. It's one of the most enlightening verses in all the Bible. And let me give you three important truths we can kind of end on. I want you to listen to this. The first thing is God is a responsive God. Be reminded of that. It says God saw. God's watching. This tells us God can be moved by you. He can be moved to mercy. I'm going to tell you what God would say about 100 years after Jonah through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Uh, God speaks and says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. You know, usually when God warns of judgment, he also opens up the possibility of his restoration. It's kind of interesting that Jonah doesn't give that part of the message. I kind of wonder, did Jonah just leave that out? Because Jonah really didn't want them to repent. But that's always God's heart. God wants you to turn around. God is offering you a second chance. We look at this verse, and the second thing I want you to write down is, is this. You can come to God for compassion. You You can come to God for compassion. It is available. God is that kind of God. God is not just compassionate toward ancient cities or ancient peoples in the Bible. He is compassionate toward you. He's compassionate here. He's compassionate today. See, God is always true to his character. He has always been a merciful God, always been responsive, deeply sensitive to people who cry out for mercy, even when those people deserve judgment. People like you, people like me. But then there's a third thing. Out of everything the Ninevites did, you know, the prayer and the sackcloth, the fasting, there's something very important to notice. There's only one thing mentioned here in verse 10 when it comes to what moved God to mercy, compassion. It's turning from their evil ways. And so put it this way, God's offer of a second chance to you means you must truly turn from your sin. See, that's what true repentance is about. How how does this happen in our lives? You know, when you read the Bible and you look at our lives, there, there really are like four stages that people tend to go through in experiencing full repentance. I want to just give them to you really quickly so you can be thinking about them and understanding maybe where you are in your life. Stage one is realization. When we're caught... Or maybe we're confronted with what our actions have done. You know, not everyone gets to this first stage, but this is where coming to God begins. You have to realize what you've done. Stage two is regret. This is where you wish you hadn't done it. But many times, for many of us, regret has more to do with the fact that we've been caught and the fact that we're suffering consequences. I'm baying for this now. You're torn up because of of what's happening to you, not so much because of what you did. This is when you need to go to third, the third stage. Stage three, if you'll let God take you, there's the stage of remorse. This is where you move beyond regret to sorrow. It's not just sorrow over what sin has done to your life, but sorrow that you did something wrong in God's eyes. It's having your heart break because you broke God's heart. 
Very few people enter this third stage. A lot of us get regret confused with remorse. But we got to get to remorse. And then the, the deepest place we can go, stage four, is, is repentance. And this is where you realize what you've done and you regret what you've done and you have remorse and sorrow over what you've done, but then you take action. You actually then turn from it. A lot of times we find ourselves thinking that repentance is about how we feel. Repentance often involves emotion, but fundamentally repentance is a decision that we make. It's actions that we we take. It's turning away from what we've been doing. It's changing our lives. It's giving something up. It's stopping Doing an about face. Is anybody here who needs to do that today? God is offering you a second chance. And maybe today is the day you need to do that for the very first time. Maybe you have never in your life encountered in a personal way this God of compassion, this God of mercy and grace, and love. Is today the day that you're going to cross that line and take that step and place your trust in him? We know on this side of the cross that God has sent his son, and Jesus came, and Jesus lived a perfect life, and then Jesus died a death on the cross that paid for the sins of the world, and he offers to us, because of what he did, forgiveness. Can today be the day that you turn from your sin in repentance, and turn to Jesus in faith. The Bible says you can. The Bible says it can happen today. You can put your trust in Jesus today. If you are doing that, uh, it's a great day to do that. This very next Sunday, we're going to be having a baptism, which is a very Next thing that anybody who follows Christ is commanded to do, it's a sign of obedience, a public declaration of of trust in Jesus Christ. You receive baptism. Then I was just thinking about this. There are some of us here probably who have been Christ followers maybe for some time, but we've never yet taken that step of obedience. We've not received baptism. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do as you follow him. God is offering you a second chance. Will you take it? Will receive it? Whatever that second chance is about, whether it's coming to God for salvation, another time he's offering that mercy and that grace to you, or maybe coming back to him in repentance and faith and beginning to walk with him again, God's offering it to you. Will you take it? Will you receive it? He's the God of the second chance. Let's bow our heads and pray together and ask him to speak to us. Father, we just want to give you thanks for your compassion. You are so full of mercy and grace, Father. Thank you that you're so very patient with us. And Lord, we need to ask you to forgive us for whenever we've taken advantage of your compassion, when we've presumed on your mercy. We confess this morning that we don't deserve it at all. It's all your grace. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone here who needs to turn to you in repentance and faith today. Even now, Father, would you open their hearts and grant repentance? 
Lord, would you open their eyes and bring faith to life. Give them faith, Father, even now. Lord, for those of us who are Jonas, um, Lord, I pray that you would forgive our pride, that you forgive our hard hearts. Lord, that you would forgive our selfishness that's kept us from being part of your mission to a lost world. Lord, may we be messengers of your mercy to people in our lives that need to hear how much you love them and what you've done for them. Lord, we ask these things, all of them, and so much more. We lift our prayers before you, and we do those, we, we do that in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. We confess that today. We pray in his name. And all of God's people together say, Amen.